You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. Uh, These are some of the verses that we already heard read uh, during the Advent reading, but we're going to study them a little deeper this morning. As we enter into this uh, Christmas season, uh, we're going to spend the next five weeks uh, looking at a selection of passages from the book of Isaiah. And I know some of you may wonder uh, why we would study uh, another Old Testament book of the Bible, uh, especially at Christmas time, because the story of Jesus' birth, obviously it doesn't take place until you get to the New Testament and into the Gospels. Uh, But long before the Gospels were ever written, the Christmas story was foretold by Isaiah, which is actually why a lot of scholars uh, have long referred to Isaiah as the fifth gospel. Because you can actually read the story of Jesus' arrival, or at least the anticipation of his arrival, by studying these prophecies in Isaiah. So we're going to study five passages from this book to see uh, what Isaiah can teach us about Christmas. Uh, This is going to be the Christmas story according to Isaiah. Uh, So turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 2 through 7. And as you turn there, let me go ahead and pray for our time. Father, we are just so thankful for this time of year. It's not often that even the secular world around us takes the time to to celebrate this occasion. Uh, So I pray that we would just use this time wisely and just see the true importance of Christmas more clearly and more deeply during this holiday season. I pray that we would uh, just be receptive to your word today uh, and that we would just clearly see how we can apply its truths to our hearts um, and I just ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Uh, so here from the word of the Lord this morning, Isaiah chapter 9, starting in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in the blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For us, a child is born to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder." And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, So there was a a famous pastor in the 20th century who lived in the United Kingdom. Uh, His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones, 
Uh, and he pastored during some of the darkest times in England's history. Uh, his congregation was in London, and literally the very day that he accepted his position to pastor uh, their church, uh, that was the same day that World War II broke out. So talk about bad timing. Um, I can actually remember accepting the position to pastor here. I was right at the very beginning of COVID-19 back in 2020. But as tough as a time as it was to minister during a pandemic, I'd much rather have done that than to try to navigate a world war. Um, over the course of the fighting, uh, there were many in Lloyd-Jones' congregation that fled from London or from the UK altogether. Uh, there were also many who urged him to do the same, especially after Germany began to uh, launch air raids and drop bombs across the city of London. Uh, but Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, knew that as his country approached perhaps its darkest hour, well, that's precisely when it would need the light of the gospel the most. So he stayed. And there were actually many times during Sunday morning worship where they could hear the air raid sirens going off outside, and they could actually hear the, the sound of exploding bombshells sometimes as they worshiped. And there was even one occasion where a bomb hit so close to their church that plaster actually began falling from the ceiling and landed on Martin Lloyd-Jones as he was praying from the pulpit. Uh, but he simply continued his prayer unfazed and then just jumped right into a sermon as though nothing had ever happened. Because again, light is needed most when it seems that the world is at, is at its darkest. Um, and this is a reality that the prophet Isaiah was very familiar with um, because he also lived during a very dark and trying time in his nation's history. Uh, during Isaiah's life, the uh, northern kingdom of Israel uh, attempted to form a military coalition uh, in order to try to attack and conquer and destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. And then if that wasn't enough, there was also one of the world's most powerful nations, the Assyrian Empire. They were just sweeping through the land, gobbling up all of the smaller nations just left and right. And they were also nearing Judah's doorsteps, waiting for an opportunity to conquer her. So Jerusalem's enemies were numerous. And the Lord had actually already given Isaiah a prophecy telling him that soon enough, one of Judah's enemies would prevail. Because of the sin and wickedness of Judah and her kings, the Lord was about to send his people into exile in Babylon. So we have this prophet uh, named Isaiah, which in Hebrew means God is salvation. That's his name. But it certainly seems like he's not going to be their salvation this time around. The dark world has every appearance of only getting darker around Isaiah. But in the midst of all of that, when you arrive to Isaiah chapter 9, this man of God actually has the audacity 
to write something that just seems completely at odds with reality. He writes that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, light has shone. His nation is on the verge of war. And it won't be long before its capital is turned to rubble. And history actually tells us that Isaiah himself was not going to be spared from this darkness. Eventually, he would face one of the darkest, cruelest deaths imaginable when King Manasseh actually had Isaiah literally sawn in half. So what made Isaiah think uh, that he could be so cheerful and have such a sense of hope? And how is it that with a straight face he could speak about a shining light coming to this land that was shrouded in such a deep darkness? And then for that matter, what does all of this have to do with Christmas? Well, Isaiah could speak of words such as light and joy and of concepts like hope because the Lord had given him a sneak peek at his master plan. Isaiah knew of this forthcoming child of light whose arrival would not only disperse the darkness and keep it at bay, but would see it defeated altogether. So this morning, we have the wonderful opportunity to speak more about this light and the hope that he can offer us. And specifically, I just want to draw your attention to three effects, uh, three results that will happen when you receive this light and when you let it illuminate and light up those dark corners of your soul. Number one, you can rejoice Number two, you can be rescued. And number three, you can have rest for all eternity. You can rejoice, you can be rescued, and you can have rest for all eternity. So first, let's look at how you can rejoice. That's what Isaiah is speaking about in verse three, where he says, you have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The nation of Israel literally began with a single couple that was far too old to have children. But they did have children, and their descendants were multiplied uh, to the point where they are now their own nation. And even though it may appear that in the short term, this nation is about to be divided up and taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, which certainly seems like the opposite of multiplication. Uh, but, But even despite that, Isaiah wants his readers to know that the Lord is not done with his people. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Because with the arrival of this child of light that Isaiah prophesizes of, uh, this means that that even what it means to to be a part of the people of God is going to be radically redefined. Uh, Being a citizen in this nation or kingdom of God will soon not be defined by merely being a descendant of Abraham, 
but rather it will be defined by being a disciple or follower of Jesus. Which means that not only the Jews are going to be a part of this kingdom, uh, but the Gentiles and the rest of the world can be grafted into this family as well. And I mean, this kind of multiplication and getting to see those from every tribe and every tongue and every people all worshiping around the Lord and his throne, this is going to be a reality that is certainly worth rejoicing about. Isaiah gives uh, two images to describe the kind of joy that he's speaking about. Uh, first, he says they can, they can rejoice as with joy at the harvest. And living in such a, an agriculturally uh, oriented part of the state, um, I think we can understand that first imagery pretty well. You know, a farmer toils night and day for months on end waiting in great anticipation for that harvest to come. Because a good harvest can mean the difference between putting food on the table and not. You know, it can mean the difference between eating well, just scraping by, or going into debt if those anticipated crops don't arrive as you thought. So the joy that Isaiah speaks of is literally a life-saving kind of joy, the kind of joy knowing that when those crops come in, it's going to be okay. Yet you're, you're going to be able to make it through the winter. But, but then Isaiah gives us a second uh, image as well. He says that you can rejoice also as those who are glad when they divide the spoil. So the joy uh, Isaiah speaks of, it's not just a life-saving joy. Um, it's also a lavish joy. Like the kind of smile and joy that you might see on the face of a conqueror getting ready to loot the palaces of an enemy. You know, when you go off to war, uh, you're not always sure that you're even going to make it back home at all. Uh, but throughout most of history, uh, if you were not only able to survive a war, but if you were able to win that war, uh, then victory didn't just mean that you won. You know, it didn't mean that you just got the bragging rights for winning. It meant that you actually got to divide up the treasure and the loot that once belonged to your enemy. And because of Christmas and the arrival of Jesus, a war has not only been waged against Satan and the forces of darkness, but that war has actually been won. And if you are a Christian... Well, that means that you are a partaker in the spoils of that war. You have access to spiritual riches that are beyond compare. So in light of this, that means that there should be no such thing as joyless Christians, especially around Christmas time, because crotchety, grumpy Christians who have you know, if they are joyless, that just means that they have yet to experience the true glories of God like they ought. That can be the only possible explanation of why they are still gloomy. So if you find yourself gloomy or grumpy this Christmas season, well, go back. Go back to the book of Isaiah and read this passage or go Turn over to the Gospels and read the Christmas story again. 
Because understanding the true significance of, of what is being talked about here and what, what is said, uh, that will inevitably re, you know, result in a joy that is not just a life-saving joy, uh, but, but it is a lavish joy worth celebrating. So if you receive the light of Christ and his gospel, uh, then you can rejoice. We saw that in the first part of the text, but secondly... Uh, we also learn that you can be rescued, which should actually be the greatest cause for rejoicing. You should rejoice because you have been rescued. Look back at uh, verse 4 to see this. Verse 4, Isaiah writes, For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now, what's the, the day of Midian uh, that Isaiah is talking about? It's very important to understand if you want to understand uh, this particular verse. Uh, the prophet's referencing the story of Gideon. Uh, I absolutely love this story because it shows that if there is hope for even people like Gideon, well, surely there is hope for the rest of us I mean, seriously, if the Lord could use somebody like Gideon, then he could use any one of us in this room. Uh, back in the days of Gideon, the Israelites were oppressed by a desert-dwelling people known as the Midianites. And things got so bad at one point that the Israelite farmers uh, were actually terrified to even plant crops because they just knew that come harvest time, the Midianite soldiers would just sweep in like a plague of locusts and they would steal and devour all of their food. And this uh, is all recorded in the book of Judges, which is a great book to study if you have time, um, especially after we just finished the book of Joshua, uh, because the, the book of Judges is really just a continuation of that story. Uh, but, but in that book, you, you see that anytime the Israelites, they were um, oppressed or overwhelmed by their enemies, uh, they would cry out to the Lord for help. And the Lord would raise up for them a judge, and that judge would heroically free his people, uh, and he would act as a spiritual leader over Israel for a season, until eventually that leader would pass away and Israel would fall back into old habits of sin. And then the Lord would send in another people or another nation to oppress them. And then that whole cycle would just start all over again. You see that cycle repeated again and again in the book of Judges. Uh, but, but Gideon, he was the leader that the Lord raised up to fight against the Midianites. So, so you might picture him. If you don't already know his story, you might picture him as this fearless leader. You know, someone who's like a roaring lion, just ready to take on anyone who's going to stand in his way. Uh, but that's not the case at all. Because when the angel of the Lord first came to find Gideon, we're told that he was hiding in a wine press, beating out stalks of wheat. And obviously a wine press uh, which back in that day was basically just a stone-lined pit that was uh, down in the ground. Obviously, that's not a, a typically a, a place where you're going to harvest your wheat. So the only reason that Gideon was there, because he was too afraid to do it anywhere else. He, he was trying to hide from the Midianites 
Because in his heart, Gideon was a coward. But if you know this story, uh, you know that very gradually he began, he began to trust the Lord. Uh, and he was eventually able to be used by the Lord to save his people. Uh, early on in the story, uh, he, Gideon is told to go tear down an altar uh, that was to the pagan god Baal. And you see that Gideon did it, uh, but he was so terrified. He was so afraid that somebody else might find out that he was responsible for doing that, uh, that he snuck in under the cover of darkness to knock this altar down because he didn't want anyone to know that he had anything to do with it. And then just on and on, Gideon kept constantly questioning God on a number of occasions, asking him if he really was the leader that the Lord uh, was calling to save Israel. Uh, you may know this story if you're familiar with Gideon. Uh, it's the story of Gideon and the fleece. And it's where uh, Gideon, he, he set out this fleece outside of his tent and he said, uh, if I'm really the one, Lord, that you have called uh, to, to save Israel, then I want to wake up in the morning and I want to go outside and I want to look at this fleece and I want the fleece to be soaking wet with dew, but I want all the ground around it to just be bone dry. And the Lord, in his mercy and grace, uh, did exactly that. Uh, Gideon asked him to perform this miracle, and the Lord did. But even then, we see that Gideon was still too afraid, and he still wasn't sure that the Lord could possibly use him, of all people, as a leader over Israel. So he asked the Lord to do this miracle again, except the second time he wanted it done in the reverse. He wanted to wake up, go outside, and see the fleece bone dry but the ground all around it to be soaking wet with dew. That's the kind of timid, uh, fearful follower uh, that Gideon was. He had, he had to constantly ask the Lord for just more and more signs. And just because the Lord has a uh, sense of humor, uh, just because he loves poetic irony, when Gideon finally did get around to obeying the Lord, and he decided to assemble an army for the Lord to fight against the Midianites, God looked at that army that Gideon had assembled, and he said, you know what, Gideon, that army is too large. So he took this army without number, and he, he whittled it down to 22,000 people, and then he said, you know what, Gideon, that army is still too large. And he whittled that army down to 10,000. And if you know how the story goes, he says, you know what, 10,000 is too large. And he whittled that army down to 300 people. So this yellow-bellied coward was told to take 300 people into battle against a Midianite army of 120 thousand people. The 300 men led by a man who had no confidence whatsoever in what he was doing, and yet they won. So, so, so be careful in telling the Lord uh, that, that you're not called to do something when, when he has clearly called you to do it because he might do something similar to you as he did with Gideon. 
Uh, but, but in hindsight, we see what the Lord was actually doing is that uh, he was actually intentionally rescued his people in such a way that no one could ever say that it was Gideon rather than God that rescued his people from their enemies. Right? God's plans are often uh, crafted in such a way that when they succeed, only God can get the glory because only God could ever have accomplished what he did in the manner in which he did it. Like choosing a baby to rescue the world from brokenness and sin. You know, nobody would have looked at Gideon and thought to themselves, man, there is the leader we need. That's the man who can rescue us from Midian. And unless you already know that the Lord loves to, to work in mysterious and unconventional ways, almost nobody would have looked into that manger the night that Jesus was born and said, that's it. That's the baby we were looking for. Surely this tiny human that you can hold in your hands, surely he is the key to making all that is sad in the world come untrue. Just as Isaiah gives us this uh, prediction that a child will be born, you know, this, this is not the plan that you would expect. During such a, a dark season in Judah's history, you know, no one, no one would have fathomed that the answer to all of their problems would be this single baby born among some livestock. Yet it's precisely the plan that is going to shine the brightest light in this, in this world, the, the brightest light that the world has ever seen into some of the darkest corners. Because the God who created light became a child so that he could shine the spiritual light of the gospel all over the earth. And if you would just receive that light and just let it inside your heart, then it has the power to rescue your soul. So this light should cause rejoicing because by it you can be rescued. But lastly, we see that it can also give you rest. Not just a, a temporary, a temporal kind of wet rest, but rest for all eternity. Through it you can rejoice and be rescued, and through it you can have rest through all eternity. Uh, look back at verse 6. This is where Isaiah says, To us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall rest upon, or the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, many of the Jews who would have originally read Isaiah's predictions, uh, they thought that he was talking about the coming of a Messiah uh, who would be a political savior. And this child would arrive to establish a physical kingdom and that he would overthrow the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Romans or whoever else might be trying to oppress the Israelites. But, but that's not what Isaiah is trying to say. This is a kingdom and this child will come to establish it and this child will become a king and he will one day set on the throne at the right hand of his father and he will rule over his dominion. 
Uh, but this is actually going to be an eternal, spiritual kind of kingdom, not some temporary, uh, earthly, political entity like many thought. And we're actually given a, a glimpse into the kind of kingdom that Jesus is going to establish and govern. You see this through this list of names uh, that Isaiah says that Jesus will be called by. Uh, and I'm actually indebted to the pastor, uh, John Piper, for, for seeing um, how each of these titles really just kind of builds on one another to kind of ultimately show you the purpose of this kingdom that Isaiah is trying to establish. So first, we're told that uh, Jesus will be called a wonderful counselor, meaning that he will be the embodiment of wisdom. So he alone will have what it takes to properly guide and direct you in your life and to set that spiritual trajectory of your soul so it leads you in a direction that will lead to life rather than death. And this means that if you ever want to try to find true wisdom, um, if you ever genuinely want to be wise in this world, uh, you can't do so without first looking to Jesus. Without Christ, you, you might still have a lot of knowledge. Uh, you might have a lot of street smarts. You might have a lot of information uh, flowing around in your mind. Uh, but having knowledge is not the same thing as having wisdom. If you want wisdom, Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who can give that. So he's a wonderful counselor. But secondly, you read here, he's also a mighty God, which means that Isaiah can't possibly be speaking about the birth of any king during his day. He's not talking about any of the kings of Israel or Judah because they were just mere men. This king that he is speaking about is God, though he's going to be born a child, meaning he will become human, Isaiah believes he will simultaneously be both man and God. And this God-man will be mighty. It says he will not only be the source of your wisdom, he will also be the source of your strength. So, so whenever you feel like the world is just exceptionally dark and you feel especially weak, this king will be there to give you the strength that you need to face this day. He's a wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God, but he's also an everlasting father. That's a really interesting title, considering that Isaiah just called him a son. You know, he said to us, a son is given. So, so why does Isaiah then turn around and call the son a father? Well, it's because, in a sense, Jesus will actually become like a father to us. You know, Jesus will always be uh, distinct from the other members of the Trinity. So Isaiah is not saying that Jesus is ever going to become God the Father, or that he's going to become God the Holy Spirit. You know, the Godhead will always be made up of these three distinct uh, and separate persons, so Jesus isn't ever going to become God the Father, but in a sense, Isaiah is saying that Jesus will clearly be fatherly or father-like. I mean, Jesus told his disciples uh, in John 14, 18, uh, when he was about to depart, he said even though he was departing, he was not going to leave his followers as orphans, meaning he was not going to leave them fatherless. 
He said that he would come back for them. You know, his resurrection from the grave actually was the cause for their spiritual birth. And so Jesus wasn't about to leave his disciples who were still children in their faith. Um, He wasn't going to leave them as fatherless orphans. So, So Jesus is not only a wonderful counselor or a mighty God, he's also like a father, which means that he is going to be very different than any other ruler that would ever govern over us. You know, regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum, uh, rarely would we ever describe most politicians as being overly fatherly. You know, there's a lot of uh, choice names You may have for many of the men who have been president of our country, uh, but father-like usually isn't one of them. But that's what makes Jesus so different. He wants to have this personal, intimate, and family-like relationship with you. But but now, the the fourth title that we come to, this last one that Jesus has given, uh, this one is actually the most important. Because all of these other titles are just slowly building on top of one another. Uh, Jesus isn't just this wise sage uh, that can act as a guide in your life. You know, he's not just another leader who has might and strength. uh, Because those kinds of leaders who lead with a show of force and muscle, you know, those kinds of leaders are a dime a dozen. This last and most important title that Jesus has given is Prince of Peace. You know, rulers uh, in Isaiah's day, uh, they were known for many things, but bringing peace was not usually one of them. You know, peace would only exist for a very short time, only as long as a king had an army capable enough of enforcing that peace. And as soon as a a powerful ruler passed away, I mean, you could guarantee that any uh, fleeting or temporary peace that there had been it was quickly going to pass away, especially as their descendants would fight with one and over, over who got to rule in his place. But verse 7 says that the peace brought by this child would be one without end. And, and you have to admit, you know, to Isaiah's original audience with their looming threat of their country's demise, I mean, this must have sounded very appealing even if it's an unlikely prospect. I mean, peace and rest without end. No more war, no more political turmoil, no more death. I mean, there must have been a very intense longing by Isaiah and the people of Judah to see this prophecy fulfilled. And it took some time to come about, but from our vantage point in history, we, we can see that this peace did arrive on earth with the coming of Christ. 700 years after the ink uh, of Isaiah's scroll dried, God's people did finally see this peace come about. This prophecy came to pass, which means that there's no way that Isaiah could have been making this prophecy up because he had no way of knowing the kind of ministry that Jesus would one day have 
And there's no way that this prophecy could have been written down later by those living in Jesus's day because it had been spoken about, it had been written about, uh, it had been read about and longed for for 700 years before Jesus ever arrived on the scene. But we see this prophecy fulfilled uh, in Matthew chapter 4. Isaiah prophesied that this light would first shine on the land of Galilee. And then in Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12, Matthew says that this is exactly what happened. We're told that he, that is Jesus, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived at Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulon and Naphtali, so that what was written by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, that the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling there in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So even when the world feels dark, even if it feels like you are just living in the dead of night, and there are clouds covering over the stars and the moon, and you can't see a single thing, know that there exists a light that can pierce that darkness. And his name is Jesus. Even if you feel like Martin Lloyd-Jones sometimes did, and it just feels like there are just bombs just dropping in every corner of your life, everywhere you look, know that you have not been left without hope. And that, that is precisely when, when the world around you, it feels the, the darkness and it feels like it's the most broken. This is precisely when you need that light of Christ to shine the most. And, and sometimes this light uh, can feel a little disorienting at first uh, when you first encounter it. Um, if you're new to the Christian faith, we'll know that sometimes uh, being a Christian, it, it's almost like walking out of a movie theater. You know, it, you, you walk out of a dark movie theater and it can almost be blinding at first. It, it's disorienting. It's kind of hard on the eyes. But, but that's not because there's anything wrong with that light. Rather, it's only because your eyes have gotten so used to living in the darkness. So, so this Christmas season... May you see the arrival of Christ in a whole new light. And, and as you ponder this child of light who was born in this world filled with such darkness, may it give you pause just to meditate on the effects and the results of receiving this light that has dawned on us. Because of Christ's arrival, you can rejoice. And that's because he has come so that you could be rescued. And because you have been rescued, you now have a, a peace and, and a rest for all eternity because you get to dwell in heaven with the Prince of Peace himself. May, may that be our hope this holiday season as we, we enter into this season of Advent and we look forward towards Christmas. Let me pray. Father, 
I know that, that Christmas is a season that is often hectic. It's a chaotic time. It can be, you know, for many households, uh, we often are on the go a lot. We're overly uh, busy. Uh, but my prayer is that this Christmas season that we would just find trust or we would just find uh, peace in trusting uh, and leaning on the, the Prince of Peace himself, leaning on Christ. Because without him, there can be no peace. But through him, we can come to know peace like never before. So I pray that if there is anyone here this morning who, who doesn't understand, who doesn't know what it means to have this kind of peace, I pray that they would come to understand it this very day. And that today could be the salvation for, you know, the day of salvation for them. And then for those who uh, do know what it is like to have uh, peace through Christ, I pray that uh, they would just be reminded of that and their faith would just be strengthened today as a result. We just say all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.